0: This is the Simi Sarah Show on News Talk 980 CKNW, Vancouver's News, Vancouver's Talk.
1: Thank you, Gord. Jill Bennett sitting in for Simi Sarah. Today, we are going to continue talking about the attacks in Brussels as we take a look at the list of what's happening right now. Big explosion. First, we thought it was a billboard falling down or something. And I said, uh, run, run, we, we ran away. First one was at the
0: American Airlines desk. The second explosion was nearby the uh, Starbucks so, Jill, that's a gentleman who was in the departure terminal at the International Airport in Brussels when the blasts went off, two of them, uh, at about 8 a.m. local time. So one was near the American Airlines counter, not really at it, and another was not far from a Starbucks location. So something like 14 people uh, were killed uh, in that attack. Uh, Belgian TV reporting one of the two bombs in that attack filled with nails. ISIS has claimed responsibility and says uh, suicide vests were used by their attackers in that attack. Then an hour later we had the bombing at the Malbeek subway station, the metro system, uh, downtown uh, Brussels near the European Union offices. So just think of the waterfront station Uh, in downtown Vancouver, uh, pouring people out heading to work in the morning at 9 o'clock local time. That's when that blast went off and something like 21 people killed there. Official death toll, 31, although it might go higher, over 120 injured. A third bomb found at the airport, by the way, that was uh, deactivated and destroyed by security personnel.
1: Uh, and just looking at uh, the Guardian, uh, Gord, one of the uh, the various sites looking at this, their numbers now say that they're saying 34 people killed, more than 230 injured uh, in those attacks. And like you said, whenever we're dealing with something like, like this, the numbers do change uh, as more and more information comes in.
0: Yeah. Uh, so the city of Brussels in basically a lockdown, uh, the entire transit system was shut down. The airport uh, is a no go, uh, completely shut down um, now. People in Brussels had been warned from the weekend. Now, our listener might remember uh, Salah Abdussalam, who was supposedly the guy driving the terrorists to the Bataclan Theater uh, on the night of the Paris attacks back in November, those attacks that killed 130 most wanted man in Europe. He was found in Brussels and arrested in a gun battle on Friday. And ever since then, uh, authorities in Belgium have been warning people that they may face more attacks because they think the cell was bigger, and it turns out that they were correct, those attacks coming uh, coming today.
1: Uh, did they say, or it might be too early for this, but have any of the officials said it is because of the arrest, or it was the arrest that then triggered this action plan to go into place?
0: Nothing official yet, but certainly analysts uh, on things like the, the Guardian newspaper, the BBC, analysts are talking a lot about, uh, the fact that either this may be revenge or they think maybe that um, uh, the group in Brussels sped up their decision to make attacks in light of the arrest on Friday of Abdul salaam. Um, ISIS, as I said, has claimed responsibility, and one of the things that had authorities worried on Friday and why they were so public in warning. Everybody in Belgium that we may be in for more trouble uh, back on the weekend was the armaments, the weapons, the explosives found when they arrested Abdel Salam that made them think this this group may be bigger than they originally thought. And that's what basically analysts are saying today. And it's quite possible there could be more attacks. We don't yet know.
1: Uh, one of the stories out today, too, was saying how Belgium, as you would expect, has raised the terror threat to its maximum level, its heightened security across the region. Was it not already at maximum level because of, as you said, they were warning people and, and saying there were, was the possibility of more attacks?
0: You got me on that. I thought they had raised it to the maximum level, uh, but I think what they've done is is certainly they brought in even more security now. So I, to be honest, I'm sorry, I don't know if it wasn't quite at maximum level Saturday and Sunday. It certainly is now. The French government's put another 1,600 police officers and troops on the border. France has ramped up everything. Every major Europe... Uh, every major airport in Europe has ramped up security, and even Canadian Europe's, uh, Canadian airports, I should say, Canadian airports have ramped up security. Ralph Goodale, our public uh, safety minister, mm-hmm. announcing that this morning, and TransLink has uh, put out a lot more police officers on the SkyTrain system a lot more uniformed security personnel on the buses. Vancouver police have asked people to be vigilant, although both TransLink and Vancouver police say we do not have any kind of threat that we're aware of. But basically, in most major cities in North America and certainly across Western Europe, security has been ramped up.
1: And it does make you think, and I know some, some will argue that that's an overreaction and it's something just to look as though officials are doing something and there really is no threat here. But it does make you think, when we now look at what's happened in Brussels today and as you mentioned just imagine the waterfront station uh, you can't police everything you can't secure everything even if if it had been at maximum security in Brussels uh, everybody knows you can anybody can walk into an airport that's where you say goodbye to a loved one you walk up to the luggage counter where where this happened you walk up to the Starbucks you simply can't unless we give up every single freedom you cannot secure every single space
0: that's an excellent point because this attack at the airport did not happen after you go through security so around the world air travelers know this very well security's been ramped up to prevent you the bad guy from getting to the airplane with your ak-47 or your suicide vest nobody has security uh just to get into the departure terminal, or the arrival terminal. Think of YVR. So this may be a new uh, tactic. Suicide bombers who don't try and get into the planes, they don't try and get past that security, they just want to go where there's a bunch of people. And that seems to be what happened today at the airport in Brussels. And, of course, with the the metro, the subway, uh, the uh, Malbeek station in the metro system, the subway system uh, in the downtown area of Brussels.
1: All right, so we'll continue, uh, obviously, following this and uh, getting the latest information. We'll take a break, though, as we take a look at what's happening right now.
0: You're listening to the CKMW Simi Sarah Show, and this is what's happening right now. You know, here is a man that... Uh... Went through a heck of a lot, personally, uh, in the second half of his administration, and uh, I think he learned his lesson. I think he rehabilitated himself, only to face this. Uh, Just doesn't feel fair.
1: Talking about Rob Ford.
0: Forty-six years of age, passed away. We got word yesterday that he was in palliative care, and today he died. Uh, he had that softball-sized malignant tumor in his abdomen that was found 18 months ago, and he's been battling cancer. He was trying to run for mayor again. Despite all of the drug and alcohol abuse controversy, he had to drop out, got reelected as a counselor, uh, but uh, for the past number of months has been battling, um, uh, battling cancer. Um, Jill, it was interesting. Um, one of the news stories that uh, that we saw an hour or two ago, uh, reviled by many because of the international disdain that he invoked with the drug and alcohol abuse, his initial denial, and the tape, and and all that kind of stuff, but loved by many in in, uh, parts of Toronto because of his everyman persona. So there's a group of people uh, out there who will be very, very sad at his passing, and then there's another group of people who did not respect him whatsoever. He certainly uh, was a polarizing figure in Canadian politics.
1: Definitely, and someone too, even so... you know, he was known in the States for a Canadian mayor uh, is a pretty big deal. Obviously, you've done something if people in the States know who you are. But also, like you said, the, the, the every person mayor, he his priority uh, and, and like him or hate him was he still answered email. Can you imagine, and his his mandate was, "I will answer every email that my constituents sent to me. I will send them a note back i will I will write to them and 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 he even got criticized for that, saying, "You should be running the city. you shouldn't be sitting at your desk answering email, but on the other hand, people appreciated that so
0: it's like a little bit like tapping into what Donald Trump is tapping into in the United States. Uh he, you know, mocked the elites. Uh I'm I represent you. I don't represent the elites that run everything. And there was a strong group in parts of, you know, parts of Toronto where his political base was very strong and his political base survived. The drug and alcohol abuse, I mean, he lied about it. Mm-hmm. He lied about it with a straight face. And then finally he got, he got caught out and, and, and that kind of thing, the antics. So um, that, that kind of everyman, but also frustration at, at, un- at big unions, big government, big elites, big people. He you know, wrapped himself up with the little guy image, and it worked for him uh, very, very well.
1: It did. Uh, We'll have more uh, tributes to Rob Ford throughout the day. Another big story, it's going to break on this show around 1 o'clock this afternoon. Canadians have outlined their top 15 priorities for the federal budget. In the top five were, one, spending more on health care. Two, cutting taxes. And tied for third were, increasing taxes for Canada's wealthiest, cutting the deficit, and spending more to help middle-class families. That's a tall order. Uh, yeah, you know what, and uh, <laughs> and everyone gets a pony too.
0: Justin Trudeau can't walk on water, but he's going to try with his budget. So the big uh, the big budget comes down. Uh, the deficit's going to be maybe three times what we thought. Uh, they promised ten billion in the election campaign; could be closer to thirty. They're going to blame the huge drop in oil and the sputtering national economy, which is not the case here in BC, but is is the case elsewhere. Uh, they're going to spend more on infrastructure. They're going to spend more on things like social housing. They're going to spend more on green energy um it remains to be seen as to whose message wins the day when it comes to the budget uh the conservatives are already out there complaining about uh, the debt is way too high and we'll never get out of the hole which is uh, again very valid uh, there was a time in Canada when people really listened to that message and did not want huge deficits. It would appear that the voter uh, so far is more forgiving of the Liberals for a huge deficit. Uh, local mayors, uh, and Shane Woodford I think will be reporting into to you this afternoon, Jill, on your show. Uh, budget comes down at 1 p.m. our time, which is uh, 4 p.m. At the, in the House of Commons in Ottawa. Um, local mayors are really looking for any infrastructure money for the big projects out here. For instance, uh, the um, light rail in Surrey. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Broadway Skytrain line, and, of course, the premier's green project. She called it green. She said it was green, so it's <laughs> got to be green, and that's the new bridge uh, the, the, to replace the Massey Tunnel. So those are the three biggies. The other thing that I think Shane will be watching very closely, uh, Jill, and reporting to you on is will the Trudeau liberals change the formula? So on big projects around the country, it's a third federal, a third provincial, and a third local government. Remember, it was the local government where we ran into all that controversy last summer with the referendum on what the local government would pay towards transit improvements. Will the federal liberals change that one-third, one-third, one-third and pay more so local government has to pay less? mayors got their fingers crossed today that that'll be the case, but it remains to be seen.
1: And that's, that has huge, huge implications when you think about it. Look at how long the Evergreen Line was caught up in that and other projects. And the federal government has always said, come up with your third, come up with your third, we'll come up with our third. If they change that to a 40 or a 50, that makes a huge difference. Well, it
0: was interesting that uh, was it on your show or late last week when we suddenly heard mayors talking about maybe even increasing property taxes to pay the local portion of a big project like uh, light rail in Surrey or the SkyTrain line out to UBC. They said that, you know, hell will freeze over before they'll increase property taxes last summer. That was the wrong way to go. We will not increase property taxes. Well, you know, that's unfair. And now suddenly they're saying, well, maybe if the chunk that uh, local government has to pay is a little bit less than full one-third, maybe they'll entertain the idea. So could there be a breaking of the impasse We'll find out this afternoon at uh, 1 o'clock on the Simi Sarah Show with Jill Bennett. Don't go away listener.
1: <laughs> it all comes down at 1 o'clock. We'll take a short break before we continue with what's happening right now. Hi, I'm Linda Steele. You're listening to the CKNW Simi Sarah Show, and this is what's happening right now. The building is plagued by bedbugs. I use pine sole. I spray DEET on my body to prevent them biting me. Ugh. Yeah.
0: Okay, so this is the uh, Carnegie Community Action Group, which had a news conference midday yesterday, uh, and they're talking about the lack of affordable social housing. So let's talk housing for the poorest of the poor, not the homeless shelters, but the next step up. So they're trying to close down the SROs, uh, and you know there's gentrification going on in parts of the downtown east side. So the the uh, Carnegie Community Action Project was pointing out that 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 housing is disappearing. There's all kinds of condos going in. So, uh, Matt Lee from the newsroom went out and he talked to uh, David Beatty, who is a gentleman living in one of these SROs. So, he's got a room that's about 10 feet by 10 feet. A small, I think Matt described it in his story as uh, like a walk in closet, is basically the size of his room. Sometimes he has hot water, but he's always got bed bugs. That's what he was talking about there, the bed bugs. So, it was just. Um, in this big discussion about affordable housing and you know uh foreign money coming in and all uh, you know housing prices are going crazy i think the the uh, Carnegie Community Action Project is saying wait a minute here there's this other group of people who are a step above the homeless shelters not doing so well uh rents are going up they're going up but welfare rates aren't going up and most of these folks are are on social assistance or welfare. Um, so it was um, for Matt Lee, it was just, a, you know, he was trying to tell the listener about, hey, this is the reality of what these folks are living, living in.
1: And I don't think anybody's shocked that the living conditions in an SRO are no. less than you might find reasonable. Uh, there are bed bugs everywhere, there's bed bugs in yep. youth hostels, in hotels, uh, they're all around. But I think what was shocking out of this was the rent. I think people probably still thought that the rent for an SRO is between 300 three hundred and fifty dollars five hundred bucks for a bug infested closet it's a lot of money <laughs> yeah,
0: I think you just I I can't say that better you just <laughs> nailed the head. that's the problem and of course maybe that's just another symptom of the whole housing affordability issue even at the bottom end of the spectrum it is uh, getting harder and harder
1: we'll talk more about that one more topic on the what's happening right now list
0: we feel that uh, the existing bike routes in the area Um, are sufficient to handle biking today and into the future. Nick Pogor, who spoke with John McComb this morning uh, on the... bike lane issue on Commercial Drive. So he is the executive director of the Commercial Drive uh, Business Society. They did a survey. Eighty-four percent of 168 businesses and 128 property owners along the drive said that they don't want a dedicated, separated bike lane along Commercial Drive. Eighty percent of them think that it would be much better on the adjacent main thoroughfare, Victoria Drive. So the question for the listener, Jill, and uh, and I hope they get back to you on the buzz line or on uh, email or uh, Twitter We've all been to Commercial Drive, okay? Mm-hmm. So, will it totally screw up all the many small businesses along the drive and the flavor of the drive if a bunch of t- parking is taken away for bike lanes? Or, as bike enthusiasts may argue and you may uh, maybe talking to one later today, it will improve things. Now, these business owners are worried that it's going to hurt their business. Same complaint that some of the downtown streets had. But this is the drive, you know, it's a different kind of it's a and and Nick points out it's a destination place. People drive there to go walk up and down and shop. Will that be a bigger problem if there's a whole lot less parking? Is it NIMBY, NIMBYism, or do they have a legitimate concern about what the city's doing?
1: It is a totally different neighborhood. And when we think back to the businesses on Hornby Street, uh, some which say they never recovered from the bike lane being put in there. But Hornby Street is a lot different than Commercial Drive. Like you said, it's a destination. It's already a place uh, where there's jaywalking quite a bit. Uh, there are cyclists on the drive. Right. Uh, I don't know. Is it a huge problem for cyclists? Do they feel unsafe and they need a dedicated line? We'll put that question out there. And or see is it people. better,
0: as these as these owners say, is it better to move it over One Street to Victoria Drive if if you want cycling people coming through the area heading east or west? Is Victoria Drive a better option?
1: Good question. All right, Gord. We'll put that question out there. Thank you so much. Uh, the buzz line, as Gord just mentioned, six zero four three three one buzz. That's 604-331-2899. We will break for the news headlines to the bottom of the hour, but we are going to continue with the very latest information on the attacks in Brussels. Two bombings, uh, now confirmation that a third bomb was found. It didn't go off, and authorities have dealt with that. But we will continue to bring you the very latest in the attacks in Brussels. Stick with us.
0: This is News Talk 980 CKNW. Vancouver's news, Vancouver's talk.